you don't want to miss this stuff because we've been talking about and focusing on this new man subject. And I can't stress this enough because until you know who you are, and in other words, what this new man is, you will never accomplish the things that God has set out for you. And I'm not one that's going to get into your divine destiny and all of this other really hyperbole in the fact of, you know, we're always, you always hear this on Christian television and things like that. Find what God's called you to do, fulfill your destiny, you know, all the great things that God has. The problem is what that is, is we're always looking to what God has for us instead of working where God has placed us. That's the problem. We're always looking for the next step instead of working right here and allowing the Lord to bring that next step into place. When I was young and I grew up in the church and I was, I mean, my folks were at church every time the doors were open. I mean, I'm not kidding. There was a special meeting. We were always there. We were very involved in the church. And that was always the thing is that if you're going to do something great for God, you can't do it here. You got to go somewhere else. But what amazed me is that in that little church that I grew up in is that God would bring in these pastors from different parts of the world. And yet they were there ministering in little old Auburn, Nebraska, not much to look at, not much thing. I'm thinking, why, you know, why, why are you bringing this guy in here that brings a, a gifting and a passion and an anointing to Auburn, Nebraska, if nothing great can be done right here? It was always this, this, this mindset. It's like, in order to do something great for God, you've got to go somewhere. You can't just flourish where you're planted. And I don't know where that's come about, because if you look at the lives of the people in biblical times, with the exception of Paul, because Paul kind of went everywhere, right? But John kind of stayed near home, and Peter kind of stayed near home, and, and James, the brother of Jesus, hung out in Jerusalem. He didn't venture out much. In other words, they pretty much flourished where they were planted. And all the people you don't read about, all the people that were ministered to by these people, for the most part, stayed where they were planted. They worked their lives. They went and did their jobs. They did all of that kind of stuff and continued to minister to God and minister to people where they were planted. And, but the problem is, is that we've got this mindset that nothing great for God can happen where we were born. It can't happen where we live. It's always got to happen somewhere else. And the reason we think that, I don't know. I don't know if it's just a distraction caused by the enemy. I don't know if it's just this idea of grandeur that it's, the grass is always greener. But the bottom line is, is that we are called to be salt and light where we're at right now. And in order to do that, we have to understand who we are in Christ and what this new creation is. Because if we never get that, then we will never walk in the fullness of what God has called us to do and the authority of the believer. And I'm telling you what, there is an authority there. And we're going to get into that, not today, but in the weeks to come, understanding that the responsibility and the authority given by God to the believer is vast. Very vast. In fact, it's an authority that cannot be uh, quenched because there is no greater authority. Because the authority comes from the name of the one who gives it. And if there is no name higher than the name of Jesus, therefore the authority we have is the greatest. And we should walk in that authority. Amen. So let's go to Colossians chapter 3 and let's start in verse 1. We've read this every week. We're going to continue to read it. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 
where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, Barbie and Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. This, this new man, this is what we're focused on, who this one is. He is brand new, not old, refinished. He is created from nothing in the image of the one who made him. That is the image of God. Therefore, your new man, your spirit person, when you become born again, that new man is created in the image of Christ. You look just like him, which is a good thing. So we get rid of these old deeds. You remember, we talked about this last week, that Romans 7 passage with Paul where he's kind of like going us, the things I want to do, those are the things I don't do, the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do, and I can't figure it out. And, and, and Paul's just kind of like, he's having a moment there where he really needs help. He's probably sitting in a prison somewhere. It's probably hot. He's probably dehydrated. I mean, it all makes sense. Like, this doesn't make any sense, Paul. Like, what's wrong with you? But he's talking about until you get the distinction between the man that you live in and the man whom you are, you will never never understand Romans 7. You'll never understand this passage as well as all the other ones that we've read because it constantly said, for you died and were raised. So unless you are a Lazarus in which you died physically and were brought back, that does not apply to you physically. It applies to you spiritually. And we have to understand that. We have to understand the steps involved to get us to the place that we are and to the place that we, where we need to go. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, again, this is Paul speaking, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Now, we've not highlighted that part, but let me explain this. They're boasting in appearance, not in heart. They're boasting in the things that they have, the way that they look, maybe even the way that they speak or the good deeds that they have done, but not in heart. Why? Because that heart is dead, is cold. There is no life in it. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. And those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Who did he die for? Them. You and me. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? It's, that is the key. We talked about this last week. In him is the key that unlocks everything. Absolutely unlocks everything. If you're not in him then you are not born again. If the Spirit of Christ does not dwell in you, then you are not His. And over time, that this fleshly body, the works that this thing does, will begin to look a lot more in Him. But right now, maybe not so much, and maybe we got things to work on, but that's where the crucifying of the flesh comes in. But that spiritual person is in Him. He made Him who knew no sin on our behalf. And we have to get that. Because this, I'm telling you folks, when you get this, Everything else is, is minuscule because in him, think about this, okay? What did Jesus do on this earth? Why did he come? To destroy the works of the devil. We looked at that. What are the works of the devil? Ultimately, it is sin because sin brought death. 
It is not death that brought sin. Sin brought death in the world. Therefore, all died because of Adam. But Christ, who is the new Adam, has brought life to all who believe in him. Right? John 3.16, we looked at all of these passages. In him is the key that unlocked him. First, you have to become alive before you can do the works. It does not go the other way around. Because your works, without being in him, are just a loud, noisy gong. They mean nothing. Because you cannot please God outside of being in him. This is the only way. There is no other way. But when we are taking this ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors in Christ, in other words, we are his representatives on this earth. Why on this earth? Because we are on it. We are not in it. We are not of it. Okay? We see how that works, right? We are here on his behalf, imploring to them on the behalf of Christ that they be reconciled to God. That is the ministry of reconciliation that has been given to you and I. Whose job is it to go and tell people about this? It is not my job. It is our job. It is not the minister. It is not Ephesians 2 and the gifts of, of the, to the church, the apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, all of that. That is not their job. Their job is to equip the saints for the what? The working of the ministry. Who are the saints? I'm looking at them. If I had a mirror, I'd look at me too, okay? But I don't, which is too bad. I'm just kidding. It's for the working of the saints, for the working of the ministry. It's for on their behalf. That's why I'm here. Now, me taking off my pastor hat has a responsibility to do what? To take this word of reconciliation and go into all the world and preach it. Yes? No different. The reason that pastors stand out in our mind is, one, they get elevated in the mindset of people to a place that they shouldn't because they are not deity. Okay? They, are, they should not be worshipped. They should be respected just like any other position out there by God. But the difference between a pastor and a saint is simply the calling of God in their life. That is it. They bring no more authority. They bring no more spiritual clout with them. They are simply called to something different than perhaps you are. Same with an apostle, same with a prophet, same with all of those. It's a different calling. You have to understand that. The reason that pastors get heard more than most is because we got big mouths and we talk fast, right? So we might be able to out-talk you, but that would be the extent of it. So pleading through us on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. But the bottom line here is in Him. Now here's the question. Who is Him? That's the cop-out answer, right? It's Jesus. Okay, well, that's all well and good, right? That's, I mean, that's, we can say that, oh, it's Jesus. But who was Jesus? Because there's three facets of Jesus that we have to understand. And this is where we're going to go over the next few weeks with this is because to be in him we really should know who him is right and not just him in name because knowing about him is one thing we need to know him intimately so we know about him and we can probably recite things that he did on this earth but that's only one facet because it's not like he was just born and out of thin air and like oh look there's this jesus figure yeah this is great because he existed prior to that right and guess what after he left this earth he still exists right so there's three facets there the one we know is when he was here. And the truth is, is we only kind of know it. We don't know it well because we don't act like it. But what about the Old Testament? Where was he there? Now, we spent over a year going through that, finding Christ. So you should have some idea of what we're talking about, but maybe not fully. And we're not going to rehash a bunch of that kind of stuff. That's all online. You want to go listen to that? Go listen to it online. It'll get you caught up. But to understand who he was before he was on this earth, who he was while he was on this earth, and who he is today is important. Because, again, if we're going to be in him, we need to know him. We need to know about him. We need to know how he talks. We need to know how he, how he walked. We need to know how he smelled. We need to know all that kind of stuff, right? And they didn't have deodorant back there, so I'm sure he didn't smell good. So let's open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
We're going to start there today. We're going to begin to unpack this idea of who he is. Because if you understand who he is, then you can understand who you are in him. 1 Peter chapter 1. So the first thing we want to do, and every time we look at a book of the Bible, we want to know who wrote it. Well, it was Peter, right? Kind of self-explanatory. Okay? Which order did he write it in? I bet he wrote this one first. I'm just kidding. I don't actually know if he wrote this one first. But, so, who was Peter's main audience? More often than not, it was dealing with the Jews, right? You see Paul and Peter kind of going back and forth and arguing over different things and stuff. So, I'm going to begin to break this down a little bit. We're going to read from verse 1 through verse 21. I'm going to break it down as we go, but I want you to see something that's going on here. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What you don't realize here is how Jewish that statement really is. Because to a Gentile mind, we don't think of sprinkling of blood, right? Well, that's weird. We don't do that. But to a Jewish mindset, this is. But the first thing he says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, this is one of a couple of things. Because it's very specific to the people that he's writing this to, right? Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Elect meaning chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, knowing who they were. Okay? Pilgrims, what do you think of when you think of pilgrims? Somebody in a land of which they do not originate from. Fair enough. Pilgrims in America, what do they do? They didn't come from here. Started in, in Europe, went to Holland, came on over from there. So, pilgrims can mean one of two things here. Pilgrims mean that they are living in a land of which they do not originate physically, or are they in this world, but not of this world? When you read the commentaries, it kind of goes both directions, to be honest with you. Are these people that were dispersed for some reason? It says pilgrims of the dispersion, so it's possible, but there's also an underlying thing that's going on here. You see, it's to those people who are in him because they were part of God, right? It says that. They're in this world. But they're not of it. Are you and I pilgrims? Yes, we are. On Wednesday night, we've been going through the book of Revelation. What do we constantly see? It refers to earth dwellers in the book of Revelation. That earth dwellers is not the church because the church is out of the picture. Earth dwellers are people who originate from earth spiritually. You and I don't. We originate from whom? Him. We're created new. So you guys see where I'm going with this, all right? Keep that in mind. So, uh, for the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, what did they do when they went to the temple? They would take that blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar. And then when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and whatnot. It's the sprinkling of Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ. The same thing. By doing that, now you are made holy. You are made pure. Right? And no, there is no longer a disdain between you and God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you and peace be multiplied. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how did he do it? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? It's talking about it was his mercy. He has allowed us, enabled us, begotten us. He's chosen us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Again, these are very Jewish words. Why? Because if something became unclean, it was now defiled and it was corruptible. 
Okay? This is incorruptible and undefiled, which means that it cannot go back to its previous state. It's not possible. That is what those words in and un mean. It does not go back. And that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in this last time. How are you kept incorruptible and undefiled? The power of God. Who brought you into that place to begin with? It was the power of God. How do you stay in that place? The power of God. Through what? Faith for salvation. Belief in Him. Making the all come in full circle, right? We're following me? Okay. Ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, when He returns, it's all coming to a head. We'll understand it then. Verse 6. In this, so what is this? That salvation, that whole thing we've been talking about. You greatly rejoice... Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So in other words, the time here is a trial. It is a testing of the faith. How serious are you about this? Because there's times that are bad, right? Like, we don't get bad here. We've got it mild here. Like, as we're doing church today, Christians are being killed for their beliefs right now. Uh, we just have no idea. That it may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that talking about? When he returns. Whom, having not seen, you love. Okay, let's pause there for a minute. How have you not seen him? Well, they haven't seen him. Have you seen him? I haven't seen him. Same thing he said, that Jesus said to Thomas. You have faith because you've seen greater is he that has not seen and, has, and believes, right? He's not talking about like there's no evidence for Jesus being on the earth. It's that there's going to be a time when people will not see him and yet they will still believe. It took Thomas to see him physically standing there. We don't have that luxury. Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So what, what are we seeing here? That the end game is salvation, right? He's going to rescue us out of this earth. Verse 10. Of this salvation, okay, same thing. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So what do we see? They searched these prophets searched the scripture, figuring out when he would be here and how he would be here. And they prophesied it all about the sufferings and what manner of time that Christ would be here. But it says the spirit of Christ who was in them. So was the spirit of Christ in these prophets? Yes, he was. Why do we know this? Because it just told us that. Okay? Now, that messes with the little theology. Like, well, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit wasn't in them. He was on them and he would remove. That's not what it just told us. The Spirit of Christ was in them and was indicating when he testified beforehand that the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So we saw the suffering of Christ at the cross. But what was the glory that followed? The resurrection. Are there more glories to follow? Absolutely. Verse 12. To them, who is them? The prophets. It was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Okay, so it was revealed to the prophets that not to themselves, 
but to us that they were ministering to. So they knew they weren't going to see him in that time. They were ministering to the things which now have been reported to you. So what's he talking about? Everything that we told you about Jesus being here, that he died, that he was resurrected, that had gotten all over. To you, through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. These are the people that have declared what Jesus had done. How did they do it? By the Holy Spirit. Where did the Holy Spirit come from? From heaven. Sent down. Promise of the Father. So this is lining up exactly with what we see in the gospels, right? That the promise of the Father to send the Spirit, there'll be one after me, he'll be the comforter, he'll lead you in all truth. All of these things line up. Things which angels desire to look into. Now this is interesting. Because here we are obsessed with angels in this country. Right? We're obsessed with them. Many people, they have, all they want to do is see angels. It's crazy. There was a TV show called Touched by an Angel. You guys remember that? In fact, I think the actress in it just passed away, if I remember right. Yeah, she did. Um, my mother was obsessed with that show, obsessed with it, you know. She loved it, and, and, and which is great. I never paid much attention to it. It was like, uh, this is kind of boring, but whatever. But we were obsessed with it. And so, do you know how much church theology came out of that show? A lot. Do you know how much biblical theology was accurate in that show? Not a lot, okay? For one thing, angels always appear as men in Scripture. Are there female angels? Possibly. I, I wouldn't rule it out, but not according to the Bible. It doesn't say that specifically, but th that's neither here nor there. But that's a perfect example of our obsession with the supernatural. We want something, you know, we want something bigger. Than, we think that angels are greater than us. And here we see that angels desire to look into the very thing that was done on our behalf, this salvation. They desire to see it because that we have a different relationship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. That is as children of God. What are angels? Ministering spirits. It's different. Why do you think Lucifer didn't like his job so much? Because he was to serve man. Right? Didn't like that. Let's look at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, again, this is another Jewish thing, but it's also a thing of this time where they would wrap that, whatever they call that skirt thing that they wore, they'd wrap it up to basically make it short so that they could run. It made them more nimble. It made them quicker. They were able to go into battle. That's the language being used here. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's go back. Gird up the loins of your mind, okay? Think, be prepared, be watching. We did that series three years ago about the battlefield being in the mind, the spiritual warfare, that this is the method that the enemy uses, that he gets into your head and begins to make you doubt the things of God. And then it says, be sober. What do you think that's talking about? Being sober, not drunk. We always like be sober-minded. No, this is talking about do not consume alcohol to the point at which you're drunk. Because why? Your mind is messed then. It's not prepared. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought. Where is your hope supposed to rest? On his, on his grace, his unmerited favor in our life that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance. The things of the past are not the things of the now. The things that we did are irrelevant because we have been made new. So we don't go back to that. We stay where we are. And it says, in your ignorance. In other words, you didn't know another way. How could you? Spiritually inside, you were dead. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Did it say some of your conduct? No. All of it. All of it. We're to begin to look like Christ on the outside. Now, verse 17. And if 
you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. What's interesting to me in that is how it says that. First of all, it says if you call on the Father, which implies that you don't have to. You have a choice, right? So if you don't want to, this doesn't apply. But it says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. It's almost like it's saying, hey, you're in it, but you're not of it. It's like when you go to a hotel and you check in, like, and you're getting ready to check out, and like, did you enjoy your stay here? Why do they say that? Because that's not home. I'm just staying here temporarily, and I'm getting ready to leave. And as you're checking out, did you enjoy your stay here? How was it? Is there anything that we could have done better? That's exactly what Peter is saying here. Conducted throughout the time of your stay here in fear. It's like he knows that we're here temporarily. Now let's go back to that verse 1. Pilgrims. So we see these two things being used together. As if he's talking to people who are just simply in this world, but not of it. Because we're just temporarily staying here until the time of the revelation of Jesus Christ when he brings us home. Because our home is in heaven with the Lord. I know I'm overstressing this a bit, but I want you to get this, that you are not of this world. You are so different. And if you're not of it, then that means the rules don't apply to you because a greater authority has been given to you through him. Because the same spirit that raised Christ to the dead dwells inside of you. And we have an authority from him. Are you guys following me? Are you guys with me? Okay, do we need some coffee in here to wake you all up? I mean, what do we need to do? Shots of espresso all around. Here we go. All right. So, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, a very Jewish statement there. That goes back to the Old Testament. We talked about that revealing of Jesus Christ, that progressive revelation, that this lamb that they sacrificed the day before the Exodus takes place is the same lamb that we're going to see as Jesus himself. Without blemish and without spot, it had to be perfect. But look at the two things. It says, the reason that you conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, in other words, in reverence to who God is, because you you know that you were not redeemed with things that are corruptible, things that pass away. But you, and it says like silver or gold, number one. So like anything that you can purchase with, right? That's essentially what it's saying. Any precious metal, anything like that. Or from your aimless conduct that was received by the tradition of your father. In other words, the things that you do did not redeem you. And then it tells us what did redeem you. That precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot. Uh, without blemish or without spot. Verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Why is our faith and our hope in God? Because he, the father, raised the son from the dead. Therefore, we have our faith and hope because something took place on this earth that changed the world as we know of it. It's a single, solitary event. The death of Christ, while it is important, it pales in comparison to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because anybody can die on a cross. Step out of the grave three days later, you'll really have me impressed. But what you see here is all of this was laid out when? Before the foundation of the world. So what was he doing? Before he was on this earth, he was planning. It was all planned out. It's kind of like you have a chess match going on here, right? It's that throughout the entire Old Testament, all the pieces were getting ready to go into place. And then he made his attack. Have you ever seen people who are good at chess? 
like it's, they're not looking at the next move. They're looking at the next 10 moves. This is why I'm so bad at chess. Because once I move my knight, I think you should just lay down your king and I should win. But they'll move like, they'll move bishop to queen, uh, queen four, and then they'll do all these fancy things and all this other stuff, and it's way above my head. I used to play a chess game where they had, you guys ever do words with friends? You guys remember that game that was out several years ago? I don't know if it's still around. It's on your phone, like you, I don't know if you spell words or anything like that, but they had a chess version of that where you make a move and then they make a move and you go back and forth. I was awful at this game because I could not see 10 steps ahead where these guys I was playing was. I could see like, well, I like it when this guy goes over here and then I'm going to attack it. I had one move, and if that move didn't work, I was done. Okay, it was bad. But it's, it's like God, who created everything, was laying out all of these pieces, getting ready for the time that Jesus would come. And then all of those pieces were in place, and even an oddball one, like, he's going to die. Now, what do you think the enemy thought at the moment that Jesus died on the cross? I've got this. I've stopped it. But yet, that was all part. It was like he sacrificed a piece to get your attention over here, knowing full well that he had everything lined up ready to go. And then Jesus resurrects. We know the story there. And that chess game's not over yet. It's just that the enemy is now on borrowed time. Because he knows the game is over. It's going to end soon. But he's still moving the pieces around. When we think about who he is, we know him on the earth. But what was he doing prior to that? That's what we're going to get to. We see this more so in the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. You guys know the story, right? It's in John chapter 8. We'll go there in just a moment. But, but he, he goes in there, they catch her, they bring her out. All right, teacher, what do you think we should do? Because the law says she should be stoned. And so Jesus gets down and he starts writing a bunch of stuff in the dirt. You guys know how the story goes. Many assume that he's writing down the names of the people that are there or the sins of the people that are there. We don't know because it doesn't tell us. We're just guessing. And then he looks up and he says... He who is without sin, cast the first stone. And I mean, had I been there, I'd have been able to throw the rock. But everybody else had to leave. Right? No? Watch out for the lightning. Okay. I'm obviously kidding. But, but I mean, it's like, so one by one, they started to walk away. And what did he say to her? She comes over. Because she deserved death. She was caught. You notice they didn't bring the man. I don't know if anybody else caught that, but that's a little ironic, don't you think? Yeah. Right, right. The guys, not a problem. They do whatever they want, right? So... But she says, go and sin no more. You know what's funny about this? Is this passage right here is used for people who are in sexual sin. And they say, hey, you see, God, God set this up. Look what Jesus said. Hey, it's okay. He literally said, hey, knock it off. Like, go and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, it's okay. I love you anyway and all this stuff. He said, go and sin no more. We say it like, like, it's like go and sin no more. Very nice. I mean, without, he may even look like, hey, moron. Knock it off. I mean, that's essentially what's being said here because she knows she's doing wrong. So this is what's leading in here in John chapter 8 and verse 12 because immediately following this event is what we're getting into here. All right? Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Now, who is the them? What you don't see is it's the Pharisees. That is the them. Most of the time, the them is the Pharisees. Like if Jesus is getting a hard time by somebody, it's usually the Pharisees, all right? Just kind of keep that. You can always assume it's the Pharisees unless it tells you differently because that's normally what it is. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, so if you didn't believe me, now you know, okay? 
You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, that word witness there is very important to a Jewish mind. Why? Because let it be by the mouth of two witnesses that anything be established. So he's saying, oh, no, 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 no. You have no witness. You witness of yourself. He just made this claim. I am the light of the world. What you don't see here, but you will later, he's standing in the temple. He's standing right there. This light is these lights that they light. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisee said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. They didn't ask a question. They made a statement. Jesus answered and said to them, and this is what's beautiful. I love how he does this. Even if I bear witness of myself, he's saying that if I were to do this, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Now let's pause there for a minute. Now think about this. Why was he so confident? Because he knew where he came from. And he knew where he came. In other words, what does that mean? He knew where his authority came from, Right? Do you? Okay, let's go on. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh, you being the Pharisees. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Okay, going back. Think about what just happened. That woman, two witnesses had to come. He made a judgment, giving her, a, giving her some grace. His witness is true because it's not just him. It's he and the Father. But he's saying that even if I did make this of myself, which I did, my judgment is true. For I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Okay, where did we see that happen? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? At the time of his baptism with John the Baptist. We saw that happen there. So you've got the father and the son as the two witnesses here. Why is this important? He's dealing with the Pharisees. This is Jewish law, okay? Out of the mouth of two witnesses, let anything be established. Verse 19, then they said to him, they being the Pharisee, where is your father? Because they're not picking up what he's putting down. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have also known my father. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Now you know where he's at, okay? And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. That's that chess match. Because believe me, they want to lay hands on him. But there's a little chess match that's going on. Verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's big words, guys. Everything we've been talking about, Jesus is laying out right here. You guys seeing this? Look at verse 25. Then they said to him, who are you? Because he just told them, you don't know me. And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. In other words, I've already told you. Let me tell you again. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. To the world is a reference to not his followers, not his believers, because they are of that world. These people, the Pharisees, are of that world. He is not of that world. Verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Okay? Now, what did He just tell them? 
They're going to lift him up. He's going to, the, the cross is coming. Now, this is pretty early on, guys. So he's laying it out right here. And he's, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And he spoke these words, and many believed what? In him. What does that mean? They got it. The Messiah is here. Then Jesus said to those disciples who believed him, okay? So those who have just recently made a decision. You know what it didn't say? He didn't have an altar call. He didn't say, bow your head and close your eyes. They made the decision in that moment that this is the Messiah. You know what the altar call is? A religious exercise. Not wrong. It's okay. Bowing your head, closing your eyes. Not necessary for salvation. Some prayer that we're led in, not necessary for salvation. What is necessary? Belief in Him. That's all it takes. Okay? We make it more complicated, don't we? We do a bunch of things to try to make people comfortable where they are so they're not embarrassed. Why would you be embarrassed to make a decision to follow Christ? I'm not saying that these things are wrong. I'm saying that we do them as if there is no other way. They didn't do that here. I think it's okay to follow the example of Jesus. Call me crazy, all right? So, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, let's stop there for a second. First of all, what he said, if you abide in my word, what's he referring there to? It's not the Bible. Okay? It's the words he's saying, which is, coincidentally, the Bible, okay? But at that time, it's not what he's saying, all right? He said, if, if you abide in my word, and you are my disciples, and say so you can be, he says you are, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is the truth? It goes back, he said, my father is the truth. I speak the truth. You'll know the truth. How is the truth going to set you free? Well, let's watch this. They answered him, these believing Jews. We are Abraham's descendants and have, not, have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? That's a fair question because the Jews were often in bondage to many people. But this current bunch, this generation had never been in bondage. They live a life of freedom. They were under Roman rule, but they were not under Roman persecution. They were still allowed to do the Jewish things that they did. The only thing they could not do is execute. They had to have Roman permission to do it, which is why they take Jesus to Pilate. They had to get permission. Okay. So how can you say you will be made free? In other words, like free from what? Here we go. 34, Jesus answered, most surely I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Well, who is that? That's everybody. Verse 35. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you should be free indeed. Free from what? Free from sin, which is what? the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy. We're not bound by that anymore. You guys following it? Okay. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Okay. This is the beginning of that song. Father Abraham had many sons. You know what I'm talking about? It started right there. I'm just kidding. Stay with me. Tough crowd. Okay. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Okay. Now, this is some of the fun. You should go home and study what the works of Abraham were. Because he just said you would do this if you were Abraham's seed. Okay. But now you seek to kill me, a man who, who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. So he keeps saying it, their father, right? 
Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Okay? Here we go. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, this is where it gets good. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth and you do not believe me, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. This is a big statement. We always read it so kind of pious and like, oh, you are of your father, the devil. In an English accent, that's how they did it. That was not an English accent. But that's how they do it in the movies, right? This is like stern words. He just said, they just said that we have one father. That is God. We're descendant of Abraham. We are the people of God. And he says, no, you're not. You are of your father, the devil. You do what he says. You lie like he lies. You do all of these different things that have to do with him. Now look at verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now remember what the Samaritans were. They were the half-Jews, right? They were not respected. That is why when he talks to the Samaritan woman, everybody was freaking out because you don't deal with us. So he said, you're Samaritan and you have a demon. So you're saying we're wrong, Jesus? Is that what you're saying? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, wait a minute. Did all of these people die? You bet they did. Did anybody here keep his word? You bet they did. So what, did Jesus just lie? Or is he not talking about physical death? We've got to catch the distinction here. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Okay, they're getting mad. Because you're telling me you're greater than Abraham? There's no way. Who was the first Jew? Technically Abraham, first Israelite. He was the one that God called out. Now Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet, you have not known him. Okay? So you claim he's your God, but you don't know him. Does that sound like anything going on today? Absolutely it does. Because it's knowing him. But I know him, and if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Okay? So he said, if he would sit there and say, like, if I said I didn't know who he was, then I'd be just like you, lying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Okay, How did he see it? Read Hebrews 11. It was by faith. He knew. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Okay, Again, another fair question. Kind of like, think back to Nicodemus. Nicodemus like, one must be born again. How do I come to God? You must be born again. How can I enter back into my mother's womb? Right? We have this, this thing, we can go back and look. We get this. They have no clue what is going on here. 
So, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? So here's one thing that this does give us. We know how old Jesus wasn't. He was under 50, right? A little piece of information. 58, verse 58, Jesus said to them, I love this, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, why did they get so mad? He said, but you were not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? He said, most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay? In Exodus 3.14, it says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus to you shall, the, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is the exact same word. What did he just claim to be? I am God. Before Abraham was. Where was Jesus? Well, he was before Abraham. And we know he was around before the foundation of the world. Because that's when all this plan happened. So what was he doing? He's setting up this chess match. This chess match is still going on. Because look, here's a move. Now we would call this cheating. But how did he get out of this? They picked up the stones to throw him. And he hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. you got to understand, there's probably a circle of people around him. Where did he go? How did he hide? What's that? He put the ring on. He disappeared. Is that the Hobbit? Lord of the Rings type stuff? Yeah. We just went all nerdy in here, didn't we? I expect more from you, like Seinfeld or, or Nacho Libre lines. Lord of the Rings is a little too highbrow, okay? Yeah. But, but, I mean, think about that. It, it makes it sound as if he did. It doesn't say he's, like, hiding behind the curtains and doing backflips over people. It's almost like he just disappeared and walked right out. A little bit of that chess match going on. Why were they not able to stone him? One, that's not how he was going to die, and it wasn't the hour or his time. So, we see again, what was going on? Jesus, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be God. This is what made the Pharisees so mad. That's a powerful statement. We don't necessarily get that in a Gentile mindset, but this means a lot to them. Then we go over to John chapter 1. We're just hanging out in the book of John. Is that all right? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, we know, because we've read this before, that the Word is Jesus. This is a title of Christ, okay? He is the Word. You see several times in the Old Testament, we will look at these again here in the next couple of weeks, is that where the Word came to the prophet, and it, sa it says they put his hand over his mouth. This is a title of Jesus. This is not a euphemism of anything. So, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, well, when was the beginning? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So he was there at the beginning. We know he was there before the beginning too, because before the foundation of the earth, right? So what was he doing? He's setting everything up, okay? The word was with God and the word was God. So in case you didn't know that, he was him. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made, okay? All things, not some things. Doesn't say he showed up on day four and made the animals, okay? All things. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. Okay, so he's laying out the foundation. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Who is the true light? That is Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, where was he? 
in the world, not of the world. See that same thing again. He was a pilgrim. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe what? In his name. In him. Now that word right there, is, you could say ability. It's the same thing. He gave the ability to become the children of God to whom those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, were they born? Yes, they were. When did it, were they born? When they believed in his name. Whose will was that? It was God's will. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we know, this is where we know that it is Jesus. Verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said he comes after me, is preferred before me, and he was before me. Okay, how was he before him? Jesus was born after John, right? Where was he? All the way to the beginning. Verse 16, and, the full, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. You guys see, they're all, we, we separate the Godhead, but they're all one. They're all together, right? But again, the key here is in him. So what was he doing? We're almost done. It, it was one of those things where it's like he was getting all the stuff ready, necessary, getting the pieces together to come into this world. Now let's look at one little more. John chapter 5. This is the last one, I promise. Start in verse 22. It says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. So you can't honor one without the other. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Are we talking physically? We are not. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What is he talking about here? This is end time stuff. Where the graves are open, the dead in Christ will rise first, right? Verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Remember when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. This witness thing, why is this so important? It's got to have two. This is why it's so crucial. We're dealing with Jewish law here. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, him being John. But I have a greater witness than John's. 
For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So how can they know that the Father has sent him? By the works that he does. What did he do? He healed the sick, raised the dead. He forgave their sins. Remember, that was a big deal to them. Okay? And the Father himself who has sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Now, how would you have his word abiding in you? By believing in him. That's what he just told us. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, what scriptures is Jesus referring to? It's the Torah, it's the Old Testament. You search these because you think by doing this, by acting all of this stuff out and keeping all of these rules, in this you will find life. But these are those which testify of me, and you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In other words, all those things that were written, I'm standing right here. So where was he? What was he doing? Every word that was written in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was about him. And now he's there. And they don't believe him. Because the word of the Father is not in it. You guys see this? You see this in him thing. It's, it's, you've got to unlock this. Because in him we move, have our being, right? I mean, it's all in him. This is everything. This is so important that we get this. Because without this, without being in him, A, you're, you're dead spiritually. But in him we have life and life more abundantly. Because this life is going to only be provided by Him. We're a new creation. All the things that God has called us to do are only possible if we are in Him. Now, as we continue on this, we're going to begin to look. We're going to look more at the Old Testament. We're going to look at the works that Jesus did. Because if we're in Him, if He was in the Father and the Father was in Him, and we know that by the works that He does, then if He is in us and we are in Him, then they should know by what? The works that we do. And you know what our works should look like? It's not feeding the sick or feeding the poor. It's healing the sick. It's doing what Jesus did. Feeding the poor is important. Must do it. Got to help those who can't help themselves and help bring them up. But that's part of it. We walk around as ambassadors pleading as though Christ himself, he's compelling us to tell these people that you need to be in him. You guys get this? You're following me? I know this a lot. I know we're just like hammering on these scriptures and we're going through it slowly. But the problem is we've read them so many times that we read them too quickly. And we don't pick up on all the little nuances that are going on because we have to get this. There's a reason we're harping on this. Is that two years ago I wrote this down that we were going to do this series. I had no idea what it was going to look like at that time. But if we are going to be his hands and feet, we need to know what it means to be his hands and feet. And we need to see what his hands and his feet did. And I don't think we get that because we're not so full of the Spirit of God that we walk around destroying the works of the enemy, which is what Jesus came to do. You guys with me?